Welcome to episode number 75 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Jackson Hole Marketplace, Jackson Hole's little community market on the south side of town. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash jhm to learn more. Hello from Jackson Hole. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host and guide today. Each week I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their story about daily life. I feel we can all learn so much from each other, and I intend to search out people and stories which will allow us to learn more from each other. My guest today is Nancy Leon, the Executive Director of JH Nordic Alliance. Jackson Hole is known to most people around the world for its world-class alpine skiing and snowboarding. Well, Nancy saw a need in Jackson Hole and the surrounding valley to inform people about the world-class Nordic activities. Instead of just identifying a need, Nancy took action. She took action to fill that need. Today, through the Jackson Hole Nordic Alliance, Nancy and her group are introducing and connecting people in a way to enjoy the area during the winter months through Nordic activities. I learned so much about the JH Nordic Alliance, and I know you will too. Nancy, <coughs> I appreciate you reaching out to me, being a listener, and um, saying that you had some, letting me know that you had some information to share about a topic that you're very passionate about here in Jackson Hole. So thank you for coming and joining me today. Thanks, Stefan. Yes. So let's start, Nancy. How long have you lived here in Jackson Hole? A little over 11 years. 11 years. Okay. And what brought you to this beautiful valley? Uh, I have always been passionate about mountains uh, and living in beautiful open spaces uh, I have been a passionate skier since I was six years old, and the dream was, um, after having lived in the French Alps in my early 20s, uh, one day was to return to the mountains and live full-time and just uh, have access to nature all the time. You're definitely a nature lover, mountain lover, from what it sounds. How did you land in the French Alps? Uh, so I was fortunate enough to do a study abroad program for an entire year or, or school year, nine months in the south of France, Aix-en-Provence. And of course, while I was there in the winter, I went skiing in the Alps, and then I wanted to stay on for the summer and work after my French had become fluent. Mm -hmm. And um, I hitchhiked to Chamonix from Aix-en-Provence in May, after someone said that there was maybe some jobs up there. And I managed to find the people who ran the the mid-mountain restaurant at the Grand Monte, people who know Chamonix, that's the big mountain there. And they ran a summer um, hotel refuge at the end of the Mel de Glace off the Mont Blanc. And they were looking for summer people and having the French and English at that point, I was able to convince them to hire me for the summer. Good conversation. Good talking. They asked if I had waitressing experience. I didn't, but I figured how hard, hard could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were waiting tables in another language, but good for you. There I have to say, I at that point, I had a pretty strong academic French, but I didn't have any street French. So mm -hmm. I made some interesting mistakes learning street French. Okay. It, isn't it fascinating that every language has its academic style, but then there's the street style and how that all progresses. So you spent some time in Europe. Um, and then also, you were telling me something very interesting that in the 70s, you had an NPR show in Denver. Colorado. And the name of that show again? 
so I was a DJ, uh, mostly the morning session on uh, KCFR, which is today still exists as a radio station under um, Colorado Public Radio. And back in the early 70s, they were just kicking off uh, NPR in the region. We were playing unconventional music, everything that was non-commercial. So for me, uh, I was probably the youngest DJ at the time. We had some amazing people. We had All Things Considered. And we had only vinyl. So I still have a huge collection of vinyl records and all sorts of eclectic things, uh, jazz, uh, import, rock, um, electronic, blues, all sorts of really funky stuff that I'm not sure I would, some of it I would even want to listen to today. But. And you said unconventional, non-commercial music. So the, the commercial radio stations, kind of like here, you have uh, KMTN, it's going to play most of the popular rock stuff. Denver had the same thing, playing the Rolling Stones and whatever the music was of the mid-70s. And we deliberately stayed away from that and tried to introduce people in Denver to all sorts of really world music, but classical jazz, uh, futuristic jazz, uh, blues, spoken word, um, English folk, uh, all sorts of unusual things uh, that was, you know, amazing. That's awesome. And what does your vinyl collection look like now? I kind of just kept it all. Uh, maybe I, I think I sold some of it, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago just to lighten the load, but I still have a lot. And also, um, my very first vinyl record was, and this will age me, uh, Meet the Beatles, which I got in 1964 when I was in grade school. And um, I still have that record. Yeah, I have early Led Zeppelin, early Cream. I mean, all still on vinyl, right? I've heard that the sound quality that comes off of vinyl is far superior than what you would ever get off of like an MP3. You know, I, I think a lot of people believe that. I still have a Thorns turntable, and I have to confess it's not connected uh, because in the meantime, I switched into CDs, and now I'm absolutely a Spotify freak. And the thing I love actually about Spotify is I can be a DJ again because I can quickly build a playlist that was hard to do with a CD or even tapes. Mm -hmm. But now I can quickly build, you know, my favorite rock playlist or my mellow jazz playlist or uh, Latin Caliente or my Pat Metheny playlist. So I think we live in such a wonderful era where you can go back and play vinyl, mm -hmm. but you can also just, you know, again, build your own list. It's fantastic. It is. And you can let them build your list as well, you know, because they know what you've played. They'll often, when you hit, you know, radio or they'll know if these are your favorites, try this. They're always sneaking things in. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a pretty interesting time for music. And then it's easy to share as well. Yeah, it's very easy to share. So you moved out here, you were saying, from Silicon Valley. Correct. What? Tell us what were you doing in Silicon Valley so I um, got into tech uh, actually living in Australia. I lived mm -hmm. in Australia for 19 years. And after she lived in Chamonix for that summer, I went back and actually was pretty much a ski bum. Uh, worked for the uh, independent mountain guides in Chamonix for three years. Got to ski a lot of backcountry. And then met some Australians and went to Australia and then lived down there um, for again, almost 19 years. Got married, had kids. And when I was working, I decided that if I wanted to go up the ranks, you know, when you're 20-something, you know, you always think you're smarter than your boss. <laughs> the only way I figured I was going to be able to leapfrog and grow was to go back and get a graduate degree. So I got a graduate degree, MBA in Sydney, and eventually got into technology um, through one of my former bosses. He moved into 
tech before the internet really became a public thing. And uh, initially worked in this global data network and then was hired by Cisco Systems, which was pretty much life-changing. So mm -hmm. mid-90s, Cisco was uh, set up in Australia and um, I became their first global services manager. So to sell all the support services for all the clients that had bought the routing technology. And uh, I reported into the U.S., so that pulled me back to the U.S. after having lived abroad at that point for uh, well over what, 20, 22 years. Mm -hmm. So I started going back and forth to Silicon Valley, and Cisco was amazing. We were growing like crazy. I had friends in California, and I really felt an affinity. So Cisco offered me a position in California, a global position. So I moved to Silicon Valley with Cisco, and uh, at, just after the dot-com bubble had burst in 2001, uh, I was offered a position um, with a startup, a software startup. So I moved on from Cisco, which had at that point grown from 3,000 people when I joined to 45,000. Wow. Fast growth, fun ride, and um, then went and worked for a series of software startups. Mm -hmm. Fun. Yeah. So it was busy times. It was You've had a fascinating career. Good for you. Talk about just going for it. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, you just do your best. You see opportunities. You, the, For me, working with really good people and working with people you trust um, became really critical. And initially, I worked for great people, and you take great leadership for granted. I worked for one company where the leadership wasn't quite as ethical as I would have liked, and it concerned me. The product was kind of fake and or just underdeveloped. And um, that's challenging uh, when you expect people to be doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very fortunate, though, that I worked for some, uh, basically all the companies, bar maybe one, with, with really truly had amazing technology that still exists today, doing, doing great things. And you meet wonderful people. I, I think it's quite profound what you said. It's very easy to follow great leadership. And then when you're behind not so great leadership and it's not true to what they're selling to a person to the customer then it's obvious and people don't want to be behind that no no i mean in the end you know most people that in this day and age when you're working you really you're putting in a lot of hours you're putting in your own integrity you're putting in your you know your commitment your heart and soul you have to believe in what you're doing, otherwise it really feels uh, insincere, feels fake. Mm -hmm. So when you're giving that much to your work, you want to make sure it's something, again, that you do believe in and that your own values align with and that the people you work with, you can truly trust them. Um, and that's not always easy, but you know, when you find great people, it's, it's, it's a fantastic experience. That's right. Did you have a mentor that helped you through all of this success in life? I didn't. Um, I was able to meet certain people that did take me along. I had one boss who took me from s several jobs. I had colleagues who I would turn to when times were tough. Um, and I will say, as a woman in technology fairly early, it was not always easy. Uh, when I worked in Australia, even though I became an Australian citizen, I still had a sort of a blend of an American accent, so I was the, the token yank. Mm -hmm. And that was not always easy. Or even being a woman in a sort of a, a boy's culture, that was not always easy. And um, so turning to either other female leaders or other male leaders who, um, who believed in you and who could, you know, who could give you guidance, that was definitely critical. And I am a believer in mentoring. 
Uh, I've been involved actually here in Jackson in the Womentum program, helping to uh, mentor women, and I think that's a fantastic program that we offer, just being a sounding board, being a resource for, for women um, growing through their own professional lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also part of the Silicon Couloir uh, mentoring program that has um, been established here uh, to help our entrepreneurial community, um, particularly our young entrepreneurial leaders, uh, grow their business. Thank you for being so involved in here because you have demonstrated perseverance being a, a woman in an industry that was so young and, you know, just breaking trail um, and then being able to share that with, with other people. I appreciate it. My wife participated in the Momentum. She was a mentor. Mm-hmm. She applied to be a mentee and they said, wait a second, I think you should be a mentor, not a mentee. Wonderful. And I participated in the Silicon Goulart Startup Intensive with Sandy and Liza. Very good. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, to me, the whole Silicon Goulart is really a treasure that we have here in the Valley because there are different facets to that program. But just, uh, and it actually goes into what I've been doing lately with the JH Nordic Alliance. I really believe in that power of connection and the power of collaboration that by bringing people together, you can get people to connect and possibly take something away and recreate or build. Um, And I think there's a lot of energy and a lot of potential and a lot of opportunity to do great things when you bring people together. Agreed. Yes. And thank you for making that statement. Let's talk about this organization. Were you the founder of JH Nordic Alliance? I was. Um, it basically it came out of um, uh, me bringing together a number of people who initially were an informal advisory board for a website that I decided that um, we could benefit from here in the valley. Seven or so years ago, I was skiing out of bounds of the village and um, got a little tired and torqued a knee and sort of did a partial ACL tear too much information. And all of a sudden, I was relegated to not downhill skiing. And I'm a really passionate powder skier, downhill skier. And although I liked Nordic skiing, it didn't really have that passion for me at the time. But there I was trying to rehab and trying to get outdoors every day and trying to feel good and trying to get fitter. So I started going out and Nordic skiing around because it was the best thing I could do. And a lot of my girlfriends kept taking me to the dike with their dogs. And I'm thinking, there's got to be more of this valley that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Where can I go? And at the time, there was really no map, no guidebook, no trail system like we have for summer hiking. So I started GPSing all of my outings. And after I had about 30 or 40 uh, GPS maps of different trails, I approached Jeff Crabtree and Phil Leeds at Skinny Skis, who were at the Avi night, you know, seven or eight years ago, and said, wow, would it be interesting to you if I put this on a website and we shared this with everybody? And then I talked to Brian Schilling, who's with Community Pathways, and then the Friends of Pathways, and I got them together, Sean O'Malley, a bunch of core people who really knew and understood our winter trail network. And um, so I got them together and I would meet them and I'd say, well, here, I'll write this up. Does this sound authentic? Is this the voice that we want? Is, does this look right? Would you use this? And use them again as a sounding board. And a lot of them had ideas and they would invite, they'd say, well, hey, have you ever talked to the forest service or have you talked to the park or what about TV tap? And I'm like, it's TV tap. So I, through all these different introductions, I got to go out and meet people with the idea of just building this information community resource. 
And uh, I just did it as something I wanted to do to share with people and to connect people and to really broaden people's horizons. And I wanted to encourage people to say, well, if you've been to the dike a dozen times, what about going up Mosquito Creek? Or what about the Grovant? Or even to Two Oceans? Or some of the f- summer trails that you could actually do on skinny skis, you know, Phelps Lake, all the ones that a lot of people know about but often forget, wow, I could go there on skis and it could be a whole new winter adventure. Mm-hmm. Or I could go on a fat bike because a lot of our winter trails are just incredible for fat biking. And that was just taking off at that time. So as a result, I kept getting these people together in the winter months once a month. And we were meeting over in um, the Teton County Engineering Office in the basement. And uh, one time Sean O'Malley put the sign up and he just said, Nordic Alliance meeting here. And I'm like, okay. So it stuck as a term. But what was fantastic is I've just kept this group going. And as a result of, again, lots and lots of really f- amazing people in our valley who believe in our winter trails, the Forest Service has been incredible, Skinny Skis, Friends of Pathways, um, a lot of different organizations who regularly will meet. We talk about information. We uh, share what's going on as far as grooming. And as a result, um, one of the really outstanding things that this group has done, when I asked the group, you know, gosh, we should have a goal, and what could we help with in the community? Someone spoke up and said, well, why don't we have to help the National Park with its grooming? This was a number of years ago, before the grooming was happening. It was happening once every month. It was inconsistent. They had old machines. So long story short, we raised some money. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation stepped up and said, hey, we are already a a representative of the park, and we raise money for park projects. We could be the go-between between between the Nordic Alliance and the community and the park, and we could help to consolidate the funds and hire the groomer. And um, so just put the toe in the water. The Park Foundation stepped up. The first year, they actually hired Parks and Rec's groomers. The next year, they hired an independent contractor. And now we as a community benefit from this incredible grooming that they do three times a week. Mm -hmm. And that I have to, I'm really proud that again, it takes that village for us all to get together and get behind it. And um, that project still exists. Congratulations and thank you for what you and the JH Nordic Alliance have done. Well, and again, I do thank the park for being open to it. I thank the park foundation uh, and the community. And a lot of people, by the way, who go up and ski there and think it's free, um, it costs $1,000 a day to groom that either 14 miles all the way out to Signal Mountain mm. or out twice and back out to Jenny Lake. And so we do encourage people, um, if they like skiing in the park, um, make a small donation to Grand Teton National Park Foundation. Uh, help them out and help them to cover the, uh, the cost, and then we can continue that um, service. Certainly. Yeah. So. I, I love what you're touching on because, and, and your story of how you were introduced to Nordic skiing, and and I've done it some as well, and I love it. I've done some cross country skiing, I've done some skate skiing. I haven't gotten into the fat biking yet. Um, not sure if I need another hobby just yet. But there's so many people who listen to this podcast that only think of Jackson Hole as downhill skiing. And I also want to interject into what I just said, Jackson Hole, because there's more to what information you're provided than just Jackson Hole. It's the whole Jackson Hole ecosystem. So Greater Yellowstone, Grand Teton National Park, the Forest Service, 
But then also going over to the other side of the pass, Teton Valley side. Absolutely. And their trails are phenomenal and world-class over there as well. So let's give a rundown as far as people who are listening and have no idea what Nordic skiing is. Just exactly what qualifies for Nordic skiing. So, um, so first of all, we do have uh, really great to, that you pointed out. We have in our broader ecosystem. When we built this website, I thought, let's put down, let's capture all the trails that pretty much our community and our community really is Idaho. It's Victor and Driggs. A lot of people live there and commute over here, and a lot of people from here like love to go over the pass and recreate as well, both summer and winter. Uh, they also go south down to the Wyoming Range, and there's some phenomenal trails down there. Um, as well as going up to Togety Pass. I've just come from Turpin Meadow Ranch today where there's some great Nordic and fat biking trails. You can go up on Togety Pass, of course, and ski out to Brooks Lake, and there's a bunch of snowmobile trails that actually are great for Nordic and fat biking as well. Hmm. So as far as so-called Nordic skiing, people often get confused. What we're talking about is the classic cross-country, which is the diagonal stride straight along, and it can be as slow as kind of a shuffle with wider skis. It can be on a groom trail in a track. It can be out uh, breaking, um, breaking trail if you want to go out on a summer hiking trail out to Hermitage Point or out to um, the backside of Jenny Lake along the Cottonwood Trail or out to Two Oceans Lake. Um, so that's the kind of the classic realm. And this day and age, you have the fish scales on the bottom. You can wax the bottom, and you can also put – they have skis now with mohair on the bottom, which are really fast and fun. What hair? Mohair. Mohair. So think of a, a skin that you would put on a backcountry ski, an uh -huh. AT ski, as a whole length. What the um, ski manufacturers have started to do is just underneath the foot, what they call the kick zone, is putting a little strip of one-way mohair in there mm -hmm. just like a, ski, a skin. So when you glide forward, it's smooth, and then when you put pressure on it, it sticks. So instead of having fish scales, they now have this mohair, and um, that's kind of a fun thing. I'd probably like that more than the scales. Yes. Well, that's a little <laughs> faster. And I have to say, I have a 10-year-old pair of fish scale skis, and mm -hmm. I just got the mohairs. It's fast. It's I fun. I bet it is. Yeah. Fun. It's great. And, of course, then the other um, classic uh, or the other type of uh, cross-country Nordic skiing that a lot of people have gotten into is skate skiing. Mm -hmm. So you're literally pushing off like an ice skater onto the side. And, um, and that's fun. It's fast. And, you know, I would encourage people, particularly people who love running, people who want to get a quick cardio workout in the winter. This is, for me, where the whole Nordic ski um, uh, experience has really come into its own, is you can put on a pair of either classics or skate skis and in an hour get out and really literally cover 10 miles, you know, cover a sweat, go uphill if you're going to places like Trail Creek, which are a little bit hillier. And um, and really get a good workout in if you're even if you're you know, busy working and things. Um, I have a lot of friends who love to downhill. I love to downhill, and they'll downhill in the morning while the powder or the snow is good, and then they'll go and do a, an hour or two on the on the um, Nordic skis in the afternoon and just to get that cardio workout. Mm -hmm. It's it's a phenomenal workout. Yeah, indeed. It's also a fun way to go and explore the valleys you know that we have, mm -hmm. um, going up to a place. Just even today in Turpin Meadow, we were skiing around. I was with some actually pretty much first-timers. We were skiing around this course. We looked at, and there was a little mouse track in the snow. And then there was a big fresh moose track with its classic hoof print going right across the, um, the groom trail that we were on. And it's pretty neat when you get out there and you 
sort of look and you're going a little slow and you see the snow formations and you see the the wildlife tracks that's that's awesome thank you for sharing because i think so many people again think of jackson hole as just a downhill place and i mentioned that i live in jackson hole to people and they say they have no idea what summer's like they only think that we're a downhill ski resort area where there's so much more to do and um do you have a fat bike i do okay and so tell people, because somebody's listening from Dallas, Texas, or in Atlanta, Georgia, or North Carolina, they don't know what a fat bike is. Uh, so a fat bike, think of a mountain bike that has a slightly wider fork um, that allows for four-inch wide tires, big, knobby four-inch wide tires. You run them at a little bit lower pressure so it can actually grip in the snow. Some of the tires, you can even have studs. So if you're on a little bit more of an icy surface, surface you can actually ride along without the, the problem of slipping. And it has a very low gear, so it has a big, big um, set of gears at the back and often just one in the front. As most bikes have gone, they've gone from steel frames to aluminum frames to now carbon frames. Some have some suspension. And um, again, it's just another really fun way to get out and recreate in the winter. What I found here is that, you know, you have a powder day, you know, people want to go back country or maybe ski in Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. But over Christmas, we had 10 days where we had no fresh snow. The mountain resort got a little hard packed. It's a great time to go out because you want a firm surface for fat biking. And all the Forest Service trails are fat bike friendly. They don't allow fat biking in the park. But again, we have so much, you know, incredible acreage of Bridger Teton and Caribou National Forest right in our backyard here. So right from downtown Jackson, uh, in East Jackson, you have Cache Creek, you have Game Creek. These are all groomed for both fat biking and for Nordic skiing. One of the interesting things, too, to note is what we call trail etiquette. So when we have these trails that are being shared by fat bikes, by skate skiers, by classic skiers, by walkers, by snowshoers, uh, by dogs, that's one of the things that um, I actually learned from uh, one of the people who runs the Forest Service here, Linda Marigliano, really famous in the Valley. She's an amazing um, uh, leader when it comes to thinking about trail etiquette. Uh, as is Friends of Pathways, and how to share the trail, how to make sure that we all share the trail responsibly, the dog owners picking up the poop, the fat bikers not riding when the trail, when the snow is too soft, and also giving way to slower people like walkers and, and skiers. But there really is enough room for all of us to share these incredible trails. Um, one of the fun things, so going back to J.H. Nordic, so I built this website, and uh, it's been through all sorts of improvements and iterations. There are over 90 trails on the website. And if you go to the trails page, there's a little search engine that allows you to search by fat bike trail, by skate ski trail, by classic, uh, by untracked, by groomed, by easy, by distance, by region. So say, for example, I just want to go to the park and I don't know where to go. I can search on there and then I can you know, I can find what's also dog friendly. So you can search by your different filters and it gives you a chance to find all sorts of new things that you really never thought about. Um, there's a GPS map for every trail. There's an elevation profile that's actually created by the GPS data. So you can see whether it's flat or if it's hilly or when you might get to the hill. Um, 
You also have a new thing this year, a location little button. So if you want to see where you are on the trail, and as long as you're within cell connection, you can see the little blue dot as you move along the trail. So if you get to a, an intersection and you don't know whether to go right or left, or you get lost in all those loops out in Teton Pines or out in Trail Creek, it'll show you exactly where you are. That's awesome. Great. Really fun. Great work on the website. Yeah. Another thing, too, is a lot of people, um, and I get emails all the time, and I try to respond to them. It's it's a very grassroots you know, organization. Uh, and when people write to me and it's like, well, where can I go for rentals? Or where can I go for a tour? I might want a fat bike tour. I might want a snowshoe tour. I might want to go in the park um, with one of the, the tour operators. So there's a resource page you can go to, and you can get all sorts of things you know, from there. If you want to even just contact the park service or the forest service or JH uh, Avalanche, um, and we, again, we really respect and rely on what information they provide to people who are going to recreate in the snow in the winter um, because it's serious out there. We try to provide all that information there, and again, people send us trip reports and they'll send us fun photos. Um, so we really appreciate the whole crowdsourcing input from people. It's important um, get feedback from your customers. Well, and just yeah. to share and say, hey, we were having fun out here, and here mm-hmm. we are, at, you know. Um, the other day, so over on the western side of the pass, there's still trails that I'm still needing to get out and get, uh, you know, get the GPS map for uh, Darby Canyon, you know, mm-hmm. in the winter. How beautiful is that? Yeah. So that's one that I've been in the summer, but I don't have my GPS for the winter. And uh, the Forest Service on uh, on the Idaho side is actually grooming that uh, on a kind of an inconsistent schedule, but they groom occasionally. So there's all sorts of places to go. Yeah, we are not restricted out here to summertime activities or just downhill for the winter time. Yeah. If you want to get out and get some exercise and just be outside and see some beautiful, beautiful country, yeah. skiing would definitely get you there. Yeah. And, 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 and get you fit. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And, and such, what I like about the wintertime in doing some of the Nordic um, activities that you talk about is you get to go places that during the summer are usually covered in boulders, trees, so this way, you're on top of it all, so you can just go. The other fun thing is that there's so many places in the winter where, if, you know, if you want nature and solitude and the whole place to yourself or a sense of even adventure. So here's a classic one people often don't think about, the Grovant Road. So in the summer, it's a dusty red road, and there's people going out there to go fishing or go to a ranch. In the winter, they plow up to Slide Lake, and then after that, um, there's actually a grooming program for snowmobiles. But let me tell you, in the middle of the week, there's really not many people out there. And you can ski out there, or you can ride your fat bike out for miles and miles, mm-hmm. and you get that beautiful, the red hills sort of dusted with white snow, and there's an elk herd that's out there. And so it's just, it's a spectacular place to go, and it's not difficult. Um, so there, you know, again, a lot of it is just about your imagination. So I tried to make sure the website was capturing, you know, people's imagination. That's awesome. Nancy, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. Jackson Hole Marketplace, a little shop south of town with a huge heart. The right place in Jackson Hole to stop for a hot breakfast and coffee or affordable lunch and beverage. Serving house-made food prepared fresh during the week. Looking for a special Jackson Hole gift to send to someone out of town or through the mail? Jackson Hole Marketplace creates custom gift packages ready to ship or deliver. Learn more today at thejacksonholeconnection.com slash JHM. So, Nancy, we're talking about how amazing getting out during the wintertime in the valley can be. The Whitaho, uh, you know, whole area spectrum that we have here. 
Do you know some of the history of Nordic skiing here in the Valley? As far as who are some of the, I guess, tri- the people that got it started that really brought it here to the Valley? I know a little bit about mm-hmm. it, um, which I'm happy to share, but I will say there are people who have lived here and who have been much deeper into the Nordic scene uh, that, in fact, I relied on, you know, to actually build the website and to make sure that what we were um, building was authentic. Um, but there are a bunch of uh, people who came up through the Jackson Hole Ski Club mm-hmm. who are Hall of Famers. Um, Pete Carnes was one. There are a number of Nordic Olympians who have um, settled in the Valley. So there's Eric Wilbrecht, uh, Hans and Nancy Johnstone, who started the Turpin Meadows uh, Nordic program or you know the, the renovated ranch. There, I'm trying to think who else. Well, originally, of course, there was Betty Woolsey, mm-hmm. who was an Olympian in her own right, more so for Alpine. But as many people know, she um, lived at the Trail Creek Ranch. And in her estate, she bequeathed a number uh, of acres, um, which went to the land trust for you know, for support, but to the ski club. So um, when you go and ski on the ski club Trail Creek land, which is an absolutely gorgeous Nordic track, a lot of that goes through Trail Creek um, uh, land trust uh, conservation easement land. And so Betty was, again, a, you know, a real leader in that. But I, uh, I'd have to say you need to invite some of the people who have been involved forever, and, you know, the Jeff Crabtrees and the Phil Leeds and the lots of people who have been involved uh, with Nordic in the Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those two have done remarkable work, as have some of the other people that you mentioned, like Pete Carnes and Betty Woolsey. Um, but Jeff starting Skinny Skis and you know, Phil becoming a partner and now their their new partner over there with Skinny Skis. They've done remarkable work with keeping, as they call it, the Skinny Ski sport going and, and alive here. Yeah. So kudos to those two for sure. Well, and one thing that's really quite fun too that people I think would be interested to know about, that by bringing people together with the Nordic Alliance, sometimes, you know, people will just show up at our meetings and in the recent years um, – there is a, a couple who's moved here and who started a preschool ski school in conjunction with Snow King and also now is doing an after-school program for the third, fourth, and fifth graders in conjunction uh, with um, Parks and Rec uh, with an idea that they are passionate about getting kids on skis and as a result also are really trying to make skiing accessible um, for young kids and then even you know families. One thing that we've tried to do also, again, as the Nordic Alliance, we're trying to figure out how can we help the community access all these beautiful winter trail sports. So every year, many of you, uh, in fact, who've, who've actually attended, we do a free event up at Turpin Meadow Ranch the very first Sunday in January. So a week ago Sunday, we had a free event with free uh, classic and skate skis, hundreds and hundreds of pairs of all sizes and boots and poles, free fat biking sponsored by, again, several of our bike stores, Friends of Pathways, uh, Teton Mountain Bike Tours, um, the Forest Service. We were on Bridger Teton Forest Service land, Turpin Meadow Ranch themselves, but a lot of the local um, community as well. We had Melvin Beer, because I'm a Melvin Beer fan. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, Snake River Roasting, Kate's Bars, Trilipiderm, a lot of Nordic, you know, not even Nordic, but just outdoor-related people to get up there and to give access to our community to come out and try skiing and fat biking and a snowshoe tour or a backcountry tour 
as well. And so that's one of the things we really are trying to do is make sure that if people want to try the sport, uh, if you're living here in Jackson in the winter, you know, you, you really owe it to yourself to, um, to have a try. Mm-hmm. And if somebody comes out here to visit, I think they owe it to themselves to get out and see some of these places that you're talking about through Nordic, um, through the Nordic uh, sport. Yeah. Because it, it is eye-opening. Well, and one thing I often say, I actually volunteer at uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort as a mountain host. And when I'm skiing with, you know, on the on the mountain, when often people are saying, well, what else is there to do? Uh, often I will say, this is an incredible resort, but you're only in the Southern Tetons. If you really want to see how unique a destination Jackson Hole is, you need to get to the park. You need to go up there and see the Grand Teton and the core of the of the Teton Range in all of its glory on a blue you know bluebird day. That will show you how this place is like nowhere else you know in the lower 48. And uh, I, I really believe that even if you're up there as a walker or get some skis, um, go up for a picnic. Uh, when you see the beauty of the park and, and some of our, you know, again, areas, uh, it really sets us apart as being such a unique destination. Mm-hmm. And in comparison to going skiing, it's $180 roughly to get a lift pass to JHMR, which, like you said, it is a world-class resort. Plus, you rented your skis versus you rent a pair of cross-country traditional skis and you can go to the forest service and that's free right and you just go for a little bit and you go see some amazing things or you're just paying for the park entrance that day to go see the grand tetons like you mentioned yeah well and i think people again who come here if they do a little downhill and they do a little fat biking they try a little bit of nordic and they see the valley and they come into town and you know see all the wonderful historic things we have in town Mm -hmm. uh it really gives them a, a, a full opportunity a full experience um, a great visitor experience. And, and of course, again, as locals, it's just one of the fun things we do uh, to get together with our friends, you know, go out um, on a pair of cross-country skis and go explore something, see a bald eagle, see a see an elk, see a moose. Mm-hmm. My boys have been able to benefit from the couple that has started teaching some uh, preschoolers uh, mm. Nordic skiing. Mm-hmm. So they're at Children's Learning Center, and they, they loved it. Yeah. So now one's in kindergarten, so he hasn't gotten to participate. But I think it's coming up pretty soon when they start taking those preschoolers out. And they just take them to one of the parks in town. Yeah. Let them scoot around, and we'll go with them. And on the weekends, we take them, we'll go get some skis from Skinny Skis and take them around around town. Yeah. Well, that, and they've named themselves 22 Nordic. They gave themselves a little bit of a brand. And they are, again, very generous people who really love getting kids on skis. And I, I should also give a shout out to, um, of course, uh, the Jackson Hole Ski Club that also has a big Nordic program. They have 120 um, you know, student athletes, kids on skis, starting uh, with the lollipoppers, um, which I just love. And um, they, again, are a great conduit for getting kids on skis. And they even have a multi-sport program where the, um, the kids can be doing Nordic you know, one day a week and an alpine another day. So they get a chance to try a bunch of the different sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and they raise money, of course, you know, for scholarships so they can make sure that all the children in our community have access to, uh, you know, to a ski education, to a coach, to that experience. Um, there's also the Coombs Foundation, um, which also does fantastic work um, getting another whole group of kids um, who wouldn't necessarily have access to skiing, getting them on skis as well. And so I think we're very, we're very fortunate in this community that we have skiing as a winter activity and then really trying to make sure that everybody has a, an opportunity to, to go out and try it. Well, 
thank you, Nancy, for your vision and your ability to bring people together. Um, like you said, it's it's a community, but in the end, we still needed the community needed somebody to say, "I see something here." Who wants to talk about it? And you got them together, and it all started off with just a conversation. So, kudos to you, and really appreciate what you've done here. Well, without trying to sound, um, you know, too corny, I mean, it does take a village, and mm-hmm. I'm really grateful that there are so fan- many fantastic people in the community who are prepared to work together uh, and who enjoy it and who help each other, and as a result, the community benefits. I mean, we have this incredible natural asset that that the story needed to be told. So, Nancy, what is the official website of J.H. Nordic Alliance? It is uh, jhnordic.com. Mm-hmm. We also have jacksonholenordic.com as another domain. So um, you can go to that website. Uh, every day on the website, there is a daily trail report. So if you want to go uh, and find out what's groomed exactly that day, it comes out every morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, either as an email or as a report on the website. Uh, and we also, of course, have an Instagram page and a Facebook page. If you ever want to reach out to me, uh, it's info at jhnordic.com. Um, and also, I, actually, I'd be remiss if I didn't also thank the Travel and Tourism Board. Um, we have been supported very generously by the Travel and Tourism Board, both for the website and all the social media. I, I couldn't do it all myself, so thanks to them, I'm able to actually get the support of um, a few young freelancers who help us curate and put together these daily reports and a lot of our social media. And also we have a a small grant that helps us um, promote, you know, market the event that we do every year, the free event. So again, I'm really grateful that we do have that lodging tax and that it does go to back to a community service like this. Awesome. Well, thank you, Nancy. Stay out there and stay healthy and keep on um, spreading the word about Nordic skiing here in Jackson. Thank you. Thank you so much. In here in Idaho. In Idaho. Absolutely. Indeed. To learn more about Nancy and the JH Nordic Alliance, please visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 75. And my request from you today is to get out there and share this episode with people. We have so much to share with everybody, so let them learn from you. And I could not create this podcast without the support of my wife, Laura. Many thanks to her and my boys, Lewis and William, my editor, Michael Morey, musical director, Luke Taylor, and marketing guru, Tana Hoffman. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode. I look forward to seeing you back here for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.